to the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. We're going to jump back into this. Hopefully, um, (laughs) we're not going to get as far as I hoped. So, but we are going to go some distance. Um, So there is some consolation in the fact that as long as we go a little ways, we will eventually get somewhere. Although I hope that the process of going is informative. Uh, So today's message is is, um, entitled to the praise of his glory. That little phrase is mentioned twice in these verses we're looking at. Uh, I was hoping to get all the way down through uh, verse 14, which I will not. I'll probably get it. My plan is to end somewhere in verse 13. So we're not going to get this concluded. I want to remind you that this is the longest sentence in uh, Scripture. And I hope you understand that word sentence as a structure of words, uh, not a time of punishment. So um, last week we, we looked at the word plan or administration or dispensation and how comprehensive is this um, working of God that, that, that nothing is omitted. There are no loopholes. Uh, God will not fail. We, we, we sang this morning, He leadeth me. Okay? And then, and then the songwriter, in, in, of course in his humanity, attempted uh, under the auspices of po- poetry, tended to list all of the ways that God leads all through life, how he leads. And that has to do with this, what, what we refer to as plan, is kind of a meek and um, meager word that describes this large thing that God is doing that Paul is dealing in these verses. Let's, let's, let's look at verse 11 and we'll read from there. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, we'll, we'll talk more about some of that next week. If you have a different translation than mine, you might have some different words, and we're going to cover some of that thing some of that next week. Again, there's a couple areas here where ESV does not necessarily have the best translation of these particular words, and we'll try to try to cover that. First thing, verse 11. In him, the origin of everything we have and everything we will have is Jesus Christ. That's the focus of what the Apostle Paul is trying to say. It's, it, it's, it's no place else. It's in 
him. Also, it's not only the origin of everything we've got, it's, it's the continuation of it. It's the process of it is all found in Jesus Christ. And when, when Paul writes the book of Galatians, he says to them, you know, you, you, you believed and became believers by hearing to the gospel. How is it that you've switched and are now doing something else and listening to something else and adhering to something else? So it's, it's in him, that's the origin, that's the source, and that's the continuation. All the process flows from him. Everything that we have in him. And I'm not going to go back and, and read all this. There isn't time to do all that. But he, he mentions redemption and forgiveness. And in the next uh, adoption, the next thing he talks about here is inheritance. All of that is in Christ. There is no other place. And then the next thing he says, and what we mentioned about it, is inheritance. What we have and what we will have. Because this is a process. Verse 5 says we were adopted. We've already mentioned that. We're taken into this family. And we talked about that when we, when we covered it. It's not because we're worthy. It's not because he, you know, he looked at us and said, there's somebody I've got to have. It's, it's because of his glorious grace, which it says in verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace. So there's at least three times in here where it talks about opportunities to praise God for His glory and for His glorious grace. Um, again, not because we're worthy. Don't, don't let modern so-called Christian music lead you astray. It's not about you. And as we go through this passage, we're going to... Well, it, it's entitled to the praise of His glory... We'll, we'll talk more about that as we, move, as we move through here. God loves you because he's God. And he is love. I, I, I don't want it to sound like a limitation. It, 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 it's not like he couldn't do something else because he's God, but it is what he is, and so it is what he does. It's a, it's, it's a characteristic of him to love. He loves. He loves whether those those he love are worthy of his love or not, and we most certainly are not worthy of his love. He loves because he's God. He redeems you for his glory's sake, and that's what part of this whole passage is, what this passage is trying to communicate to us, that this wonderful, huge, divine, all-encompassing process or plan or administration that we talked about, that that God is doing it, he's doing it so that through us, he will receive glory. And he redeems us for his glory's sake. So, um, here, now, we have an inheritance. And we have... Wonderful things from the Lord. We'll talk uh, about one in a minute. Here we'll talk about prayer in a minute. We have an opportunity, you know, the, the privilege of prayer. We have wonderful things that we have, as we read in the song, uh, or as we sang in the song, and as Scripture teaches us, the Holy Spirit directs us. Now some of this is in verses I'm not going to get to today, being sealed by the Spirit. Uh, that's an amazing thing. I'm not going to have time to get to that today. Those are all, those and many other things we have right now. And then there's also an inheritance that waits for us 
when this life is over, which frankly we cannot comprehend. And I hope by the time the day is over, you will realize, we all will realize how frail and faulty our understanding of God is. Um, so our inheritance is here and in the future because of his grace, which we received. He, he showed us that grace at the cross. Um, look, the, the, the next interesting word, it says, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. So you got a, a big long sentence there. Um, a lot wrapped up in that. We've already we already talked about this somewhat. Um, the, the God's plan, and you, you can remember that we talked about this. So yes, God is in complete control. He's a sovereign God. Now, I don't, I'm not going to go into all that. We talked about it somewhat. But yes, that's true. Yes, we also have responsibilities. When we get to chapter four, after Paul lays this theological foundation in the first three chapters of this book. Chapter 4, he begins to tell us how to live. He would not tell us how to live if there was not some expectation of responsibility on our part to listen to what he says and do it or obey. So, yes, God's in charge. Yes, we have responsibility. Yes, Scripture teaches both. Okay, there's three yeses. Here's the fourth yes. Yes, we can't comprehend that. How can God be in complete charge and yet we have things we have to do? Let me add a little bit to this puzzle. We, let's talk for a second or think for a minute about prayer. When you pray, are you telling God something he doesn't know? Okay, so, you know, you, you're not saying, hey Lord, I wanted to remind you of something you probably forgot or maybe you don't know what's happening over here, or, uh, Lord, I'm sure, you know, you just don't know the way that I feel. All right? We may say that to another human being, but we're not, we're not uh, actually believing that when we say that to God, unless we have a very puny, puny God. So we, we are commanded to pray, and prayer is a puzzle. We're to ask God to do what God already knows needs to be done. And, and New Testament bears this out. So what's, what sense does that? Well, it, I don't know what sense it, I don't know what sense it makes, except that that's what God wants it. Because we in our weakness, we, we, we turn to God, and we in our weakness cannot do it. And because God can do anything... So we pray. Why do we pray? Do we pray to change God's mind? No. Do we pray to pester him to surrender? And there's some who pull some verses and make it sound like that, and that's not really what's going on at all. We don't pester him so that he surrenders and says, oh, okay, I'll just go ahead and do what you want. Okay? If that's the case, then we're missing his will. What we do when we pray is we express our faith in an all-powerful God, a God who is in control. If God is not sovereign and is not in control, there is no basis, intellectual basis for prayer. Prayer is dishonesty. If, 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 
If we don't believe that God can change things, then the only benefit of prayer has is the same benefit that meditation has. We're just, we're just saying words, making noises, and entering into some sort of uh, mystical trance. But if God is, is a very real God with very real powers and very real ears so that he can hear. Remember the Old Testament says, you guys pray to gods over there who don't even have ears and they can't hear, they're wooden. It says, I'm a God, I, my ears are not deaf and my arm is not shortened. God can indeed act. We're not, <laughs> we're not waking God up. Remember Elijah's battle? with the prophets of Baal, and he says, you know, you guys should pray a little louder, maybe your God's asleep. You know, just get a little bit louder. doesn't work like that. And that's one of the, that's one of the amazing things that folks miss when we talk about, you know, we, we use words like predestination and elect, and, and we talk about God's plan, and, you know, even the song that we sang to some degree, we, we, we get into this place and we get very uncomfortable with all that. I'll talk more about that in just a second, but one of the things that the apostle's doing here is showing that this God who, who sent his son to die for us is outside this system. He's not a big man like the ancient gods. The ancient gods... The people in those ancient times created gods and, and maybe in modern times too, create, created gods who were just great big men. They were just more powerful men and they were full of all the weaknesses of men and they were arbitrary. And, and you, you, you don't have to go very far in, in reading mythology and, and, the, and, and the actions of these gods. And, and those, those worshipers who were dealing with those arbitrary gods never knew where they stood. They never knew uh, if they pleased their God. They, they never really knew what their God was doing. So the Apostle Paul is laying all this out. And he says, listen, God's got this plan. And here's what, and we'll see it in verse 14. The end of this plan is to, to uh, redeem his possession to the praise of his glory. That's what it says in verse 14. He, he alludes to it earlier in, the, in this passage, that God's going to bring all things back into his, uh, under his control. But before the world was even made, he put his unfailing process in place, a, a, a process where he will bring all things to himself, and he even went so far as to tell us about it ahead of time. I don't know, how, how many feel comfortable making prophecies? <laughs> the more public they are, the more likely they are to cause you embarrassment. But God not only put this process into place, he told us about it. So we would never feel abandoned. We would never feel alone. We would never feel like we were tossed on some wind. I mean, listen to what James says. James told us that if we ask in faith, God will give us what we need. And that if that unstable person is the one who's tossed. 
Paul wrote in Ephesians that as we grow up into the full match, uh, the full measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we'll grow into a stability and a strength. Why? Because our confidence is not based on some arbitrary thing. It's based on this plan of God that we, we understand because of faith started before the world was created. And, and we can look back through the Old Testament and see what God has done right up to the focal point of all history, which is the cross of Christ in Jerusalem on that day when they killed him. We can look at all, we, we can look at all of that and, and, and see how God's plan is unfolding and we can have confidence in it. You say, well, we, we don't know, we don't know what's going to happen in the, on the, on the political scene and there are so many crazy things that are going on and I will suggest to you that if you think it's crazy now it's going to get crazier as the days progress <laughs> uh, you know don't be thinking oh good I'm glad that's over well it, it, when it's over something else will happen but in, in the midst of all of that our, our, our confidence is in this unfailing listen to that un failing plan of God. I'm not going to go on the rest of that. We've covered a lot of that in there, but I wanted to touch on that. Now, verse 12, he says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. And there's that phrase. The we here that he's referring to were the Jews. So remember your history. God called a people by the way let me just touch on this again uh, uh, a lot of people who just you know their hackles get up when they say God chooses people don't have a process don't have a problem Christians don't have a problem with God choosing Abraham God chose Abraham out of a midst out of the midst of an ungodly culture and said, Abraham, do what I'm telling you to do. I'm going to do something with you. And Abraham moved, and you can read it in the book of Genesis, went from place to place, and then God, and God gave him promises as on he went, and so on and so forth. So um, all of that, God's chosen people, So when, of which Paul was one, and Jesus was one. Jesus was a Jew. Okay, I get tickled. Uh, we looked at, in our adult class here, we looked at, at some uh, images in Catholic churches in uh, Central America. And uh, they, weren't, they, they were supposed to be biblical characters and they looked just like Western European people. They did not look like Middle Eastern people. Um, Jesus probably would have had a different complexion and a different facial structure than most of us because he was, he was from the Middle East. Um, oh, yeah, well, whatever. So God's chosen people. So that's Paul is saying here. We were the first. And wherever Paul went, he preached first to the Jews. You know this. He went to the synagogues. When they kicked him out, then he went to the Gentiles. It was the Jews who first heard. As a matter of fact, it was more than a decade 
and I, I don't remember, I didn't look it up for this, it was more than a, much more than a decade before the first Gentiles uh, were Christians. It was all Jewish. So Paul says, we were the first. And then he says in verse 13, and then you heard the word of truth. So he changes that pronoun there. He goes from we to you, and he's referring to those Ephesians, those Gentiles. Now, I, let me kind of sum this up and move on to something else. That's not a racial thing. That's There's a spiritual uh, component to that because it's part of the the revealed plan of God showing God's purpose. That God said in the beginning through Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed and then he used Abraham to create this people who were supposed to have this special relationship imagine this they were supposed to have this special relationship with God who knew God who got his word he gave his word to them they were to show that to all the people they were to show that relationship to all the peoples of the world and culminating in the in in Christ who now through, through Christ, through the son of David, touches all of the people of the world, and his spirit, and again, there's a bunch of verses that we could talk about, his spirit comes, and now God, instead of dwelling in a temple in Jerusalem, dwells in us. And we become his temple. Individually and corporately. All believers, God dwells in all believers. That's why, folks, it's a fallacy to say, I'm coming into your presence, Lord. You know, sometimes we use these figures of speech when we pray, and Lord, I want to come into your presence today. Well, when did you leave? And where did you go where God wasn't? I mean, were you hiding under the table? I'm sure God couldn't see you there. Did you go down the basement? You got a lead room? God can't see through a lead room? No, God's stronger than Superman. Superman wasn't real. Just throw that out there. So, to the praise of his glory. Now, um, I'm going I'm to read to you a couple uh, passages here. We're talking about to the praise of his glory. I want to read to you a little. This is from MacArthur's book. I want to make sure I, everybody's getting in trouble for plagiarism. Uh, so I don't want to get, I don't want to be one of those guys. So I'm going to read this very carefully. Some of you are laughing. You know what I'm talking about. I want to read this to make sure you understand that it wasn't me. He says, man is redeemed for the purpose of restoring the divine image marred by sin. Because God's intention in creating man was that they should bear the divine image Salvation's goal is creation's goal. And we'll see this when we get to the end of this little passage. It, it's starting at creation, and when, when the Lord is done through his gospel plan, it's going to come right around and, and complete the process. So I, that sentence was, salvation's goal is creation's goal. God desires creatures that will give him glory, both by proclaiming and displaying his glory for that reason he redeems men. And that ties back to this statement uh, that we are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And it ends in verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance 
um, until we acquire possession of it. We'll talk about that wording later. To the praise of His glory. That this is all happening so that God would receive praise. So that God would be glorified. Now I'm going to continue to read here because there's an interesting thought. And this is, the, this is basically the main thought I want you to, to see. Scripture always presents salvation from God's side in order that he should have full credit. In our humanly or oriented society, God's wanting exclusive credit seems inappropriate, but only because men have no concept of his greatness, holiness, and glory. See, most, even most Christians have much the same view as those pagan worshipers. They view God as a great big man. And that's wrong. What views they have of him are simply projections of themselves. The praise and glory that men so much desire are totally undeserved and their motives for wanting them are purely sinful. But God seeks glory for the right reasons and because he alone is deserving of it. His his seeking glory is a holy desire of which he is supremely and singly worthy. Um, we, our, our thinking, well, uh, let me go at it this way. Part of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is to redire- redirect our priorities and change our thinking. So when, we, when Paul later writes uh, in Romans, he says, um, be not conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed. By the what? By the renewing of your mind that you may prove, and I can't get into word study on that, but it, but it basically means that you'll test and you'll know so that you'll have certainty what is the perfect will of God. So the, the whole process of God drawing all things back to himself is where reality is. And it's, a, it's the Holy Spirit that's supposed to be showing us that this world is not our world. It's not, it's here for us to use, but it's not focused on us, that this whole world and everything in it is to give glory to Him. And that He Himself is the central reality, the central truth, the central of all. And we... Um, let Let me rephrase this. The truth or the reality is obscured in this in this world, except through us, and that refers to the glory of His holiness. So I I want to challenge you today. If if you are not at some sort of odds. Intellectually, by that I mean in your thinking, and probably connected to that, you know, emotionally where your where your heart is. If you do not have a struggle with this world in that in those ways, you need to ask the Holy Spirit to help you because something's not hitting. It's not connecting. The gears aren't meshing. The Holy Spirit wants to change you and wants you to see more and more 
the glory of God. I want you to exemplify more and more the glory of God. I'm going to read to you uh, just a little bit. I, I can't do this whole thing. I, um, I, I, there's, this is the, the book that the young men are going through, The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And chapter 5 is worth the price of the book. If you, if for no other, if you don't have this book, get it. If you don't read anything else, read chapter 5. And I, I can't go through all of it. There's just too much here to, to, to deal with it. Uh, I'm going to read an excerpt to you from from um, page 99. Bonhoeffer basically says kind of a, a brief outline that uh, that God only deals with individuals, and when He comes to a person and reveals, when the Lord comes to a person and reveals Himself, He makes that person an individual. There's uh, there's so much involved in this. I, Man, I could, we, could, we could spend days and days just unpacking it, but he makes that person individual. Before that, the person is part, of, is part of a collective and he's just going along, but all of a sudden, the Lord comes and shows himself to him and says, I'm calling you to be an individual, just like he did to Abraham. We'll talk about Abraham in a minute. He says, I'm calling you to be an individual. You're going to listen to me. You're not going to listen to this world anymore. So Bonhoeffer uses the term mediator. How many know there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ? That's from Scripture. Bonhoeffer uses the word mediator in theory. So all of a sudden now, everything that goes on in this world goes through Jesus Christ. Again, I challenge you to get it and read chapter 5. Chapter 5 is worth the price. I think this book, it says uh, 1899, unless you're a Canadian. I feel sorry for you if you're in Canada. So $19 for this book. This, chapter 5 is worth $20. I don't know if we have any out there on the table. Do you know? There are none. Okay, so you're going to have to... Some of you are kindly people anyway and, and, and uh, audible, audible people. Uh, he, he, he explains this in such a marvelous term. I've, I, I have tried to explain this over the years. I, I knew it and I just couldn't articulate it uh, the way he does. Let me read to you just a little bit. Abraham became a stranger and a sojourner in order to gain the promised land. This was his first call. Later on, he was called by God to offer his own son Isaac as a sacrifice. Christ had come between the father of faith and the child of promise. Abraham must learn that the promise does not depend on Isaac, but on God alone. No one else hears this call of God, not even the servants who accompanied Abraham to Mount Moriah. Have you ever wondered how lonely it was for that man to walk his son up that mountain? And by the way, the son was not a baby, okay? Knowing that when he took him up there and, and, and the son said, where's the sacrifice, Dad? Would that not have broken your heart? I say, well, Abraham knew he wasn't going to kill his son. That's not the case. Abraham believed he was going to kill his son. It's a testimony of Scripture that Abraham believed that God would raise him from the dead. And if you read the Scripture carefully, you'll find out that God interjected himself in that situation when the knife was raised over his son. In Abraham's mind, he killed Isaac. In Abraham's mind, Isaac was dead at his hand. 
There is a reason why some people do not respond to the call of God is because it's too costly and too painful. Okay, so uh, it says that, I'm going to skip ahead here. The tables are completely turned. Abraham receives Isaac back, but henceforth he will have his son in quite a new way. Through the mediator and for the mediator's sake. Since he had shown himself ready to obey God literally, he is now allowed to possess Isaac, though he had him not. To possess him through Jesus Christ. No one else knows what has happened. Abraham comes down from the mountain with Isaac just as he went up, but the whole situation has changed. Christ has stepped between father and son. Abraham had left all and followed. He uses Christ here. I think you understand what he's saying. Abraham had left all and followed Christ. And as he followed him, he is allowed to go back and live in the world as he had done before. Outwardly, the picture is unchanged. But the old world has passed away. And behold, all things are new. Everything has had to pass through Christ. And he goes on. I've got to quit talking about that. But he goes on to explain how from that point on, everything is different. Nothing is ever the same. You realize, folks, we... and. Uh, there's a there's a parallel in here I can't get into right now, but do you realize we have churches filled with people and nothing has changed? They're, they're not there so that their lives can glorify God. They're there because, in, in some of these instances, they're there because they believe God's going to give them stuff. And um, Bonhoeffer goes on to explain how even though Abraham came back with Isaac and he still had his son. He even, in the, in the chapter there, he even quotes where, where Peter came and said, you know, we left all, followed you. What are we going to get? And he uses that. I, again, I can't go into all that today. It's not really the focus of what we're talking about. It's kind of a side issue that I wanted you to see that, that in this glorifying God, it, it's not about us. And when we really walk with him and when we really obey the call, it will cost us Everything. Say, well, he'll give it back to you. He'll give it back to you, but it will not be the same as it was. And somehow when you walk with that, there's a bittersweet. Jacob says, hey, God, I want you to bless me, and I'm not letting go unless you bless me. And God says, okay, I'll bless you. And he pops his hip out of joint, and he walks for a limp with, walks with a limp for the rest of his life. I'm sure if you went to him and said, what, are you sorry you did that? He would say no. And if we would really go back to this, you know, the renewing of our mind and the way we think about all this stuff, back to MacArthur's quote, if we really, if we really think about this, maybe if we really have the mind of Abraham, when we look at Isaac, we don't just see him as his spiritual promise. We don't just see him as his physical son. We see him as this wonderful Part of this wonderful process where God raised Abraham's eyes to something bigger than is on this earth. I'm trying to think what here, I, I wrote it in my, I'm sorry, I stick post-it notes all over this book. Yet if Abraham saw it as God does, perhaps he thrills in the victory of the Spirit. That Abraham at that point was set free from all of these earthly things and realized that the, that Everything he's got, even his only son. Listen to that. Even his only son, son of promise, belongs to God.
Verse 13, he says, uh, in him, once again, that, and I mentioned this when we started this, that passage is used, those little, that little phrase is used over and over again. Even in all, also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So he says, you heard and you believed. Um, the gospel... Here's a quote I found from Henry Ironside. Okay, it's another one of the Ephesians books I'm reading. I didn't bring it out here because it was short, so I just wrote the quote down, all right? Here's what Henry Ironside, the gospel says, the gospel is not good advice to be obeyed, but good news to be believed. Now, keep your finger there in Ephesians. We we will close there in in just a minute or two. Or ten, and go to the book of Romans. Are you guys still there? All right. It's just so. It's just Romans ten. Let me read to you just a few verses. Verse eight. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they never heard? And how shall they hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So let me kind of explain what's going on there. Paul says Any, anyone who hears and, and, and believes can be saved. Because faith is produced in their heart by hearing. Faith slash belief, because you can see those words are used kind of interchangeably here, comes from hearing. Faith does not come from obeying. Obedience comes from faith, and faith comes from what? Hearing. Now you guys are all looking at me funny. The, the the maybe it's because I'm funny looking. I'm not sure. I'm not going to delve into that right now. <clears throat> we in this religious world that we've lived in, that we've all grown up in, and it's that it's permeated our our culture. If you want to have acceptance to God, you do stuff. If you want to grow in God, you do stuff. Everything the Bible says, everything that is not of faith is what. Sin. Those who come to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. So faith is, and we'll use it here interchangeably, belief, that's, that's what connects us to God. Abraham was the father of the righteous because he was the father of those who believe God's word. And that's important. He believed what? He believed God's 
word. There's all kinds of people out here who believe all sorts of things that God never said. That doesn't, that doesn't connect them to God. There's people who believe things that they thought up in their own mind. That doesn't connect them to God. What, what causes faith to happen, biblical faith to happen, is when someone hears the word and, and the Holy Spirit says to them, that's true, and they say, I believe that. And because they believe that, they can be saved. Because they believe that, as they, as they walk in the Lord, then they, can, they, they will be sanctified, they will change, they will grow, the Bible says. Again, I don't have time to put all these references here, but they will grow from what? From faith to faith. Because they'll keep hearing and, and they'll keep believing. The gospel is an indicative, not an imperative. What am I saying? The gospel is a truth, not a command. Please, folks, don't go out of here thinking you've got to do something to please God. What you do to please God is believe what he says. There are a couple of things I want to say about this before we close. Number one, that's why we emphasize preaching here or telling the story. That's all it is. And if you actually looked up uh, what we use as the word, how we, the word gospel, it has to do with telling a story. Again, it's an indicative, it's a truth. And if we, if we preach and we do it right, it brings faith. And, and we shouldn't get it cluttered. I want to read, I want to read another quote here. Um, it says, Man-made systems of religion which rely on ritual or works or both not only do not lead to God, but can become greater barriers to finding him. Now, I'm not going to go take the time today to go down through the litany of church stuff that we don't do, but one of the reasons we don't do it is because we don't want to put barriers in people's mind. We don't want to make, give people false assurance, well, I've done this, therefore, or I, since I haven't done that, therefore. Don't get cluttered. Avoid the cluttered. It's all, it's man-made stuff. And here's the second thing I want to say about this. In modern Western Christianity, we have, we're in danger because we have vacant or vapid pulpits. There is no gospel truth. There are people today all over Western civilization hearing a bunch of cultural euphemisms that cannot change men or produce faith. Um, I, I went to a, I recently attended a, a minister's meeting and they asked the first guy to share what's been going on and then they went around the table and when it got to me I, I talked about something different but every one of the people who talked talked about how they've been sharing the gospel in personal relationship and counseling how many know there's a place for that this is a group of preachers. I haven't done it yet, but I'm, I'm going to write a note to the leader of the group and say, hey, this is what I saw. Help me understand this. 
but do we not know how to preach anymore? I got another group with and that I meet with and when they get together they say, what are you preaching on? Folks, what's a preacher supposed to do? Preach. Is that a hard question? Okay. It's not a hard question. It's an easy question. Those early disciples, those early disciples says, look, you, you choose you men among you who are faithful men and so they can take care of this problem and meet the needs of these people so that we can devote ourselves, what? To the Word of God. To prayer and to the Word of God. So I looked around the table, looked around at that group, and I thought to myself, what's, what's going on here? Are these guys terrible preachers? Is their preaching... One of the reasons that, that a lot of mainline churches over the past four or five decades have died is because the pulpits are vapid and vacant. And as it creeps into the evangelical world, pulpits vacant and vapid, then people will leave those churches also. I appreciate the fact that every week when we come, someone someone prays. I I I would praise for me, and I would. That's wonderful. Please do so. But I would I would encourage you to pray a week ahead. Because if you're praying for right now, you know, it's kind of late for me to fix things. (laughs) Not saying it can't happen, but it's probably just going to prolong the day. So, uh, we have people who don't know how to preach, or don't care to preach, or don't want to study. Now, What's the practical side of this? The practical side of this is, number one, stay in this book. Get in this book. This is the only thing that will produce faith in you. If you have this, uh, this is an amazing thing. If you have this book, and this book is in you so the Holy Spirit can use it, you'll see things out here that will cause you to give glory to God that you would never see if you didn't have this book. And you'll find yourself having worship experiences and your faith being raised because you saw this or that or heard this or that or thought about this or that while this experience was going on. And it's because you were in this book and were grounded in this book and the Holy Spirit can use that to produce that closeness to God and that worship to you in those, those uh, uh, serendipitous moments that you otherwise wouldn't have. And if you don't have this book and the Holy Spirit working, you're just like a dumb beast walking through the earth. Number two, and I, I want to make, make sure that I balance this out. Please, you don't have that personal time with people. But your testimony should always lead very soon to the truth. And the truth, story, the true story of God sending his son to die for you. That's the gospel. And I remember a while back we had some we we did some talking and some classes and we talked about how to produce your testimony. You ought to be able to give it in an elevator. You ought to be able to have an introductory sentence that leads into the fact that God revealed Himself to you and showed to you that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that you were a sinner, and that God sent His only begotten Son to die for you. That is the gospel. How long does that take? 15 seconds. 
That's the gospel. That'll send some people home shaking their head and saying, what a crazy guy. I asked him about the weather. I said I didn't like the crummy weather. And he said, I didn't, like the, I didn't used to like the crummy weather either. But <laughs> the Lord Jesus opened my eyes one day, caused me to see that he died for me, and now I can rejoice in any weather whatsoever. And that guy's going to get off the... He's going to look back at you and say, I hope I never get on the elevator with you again. Someone else is going to get off that elevator and go home and look at the clouds. And the Holy Spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit who quickens people, He's the one who convicts, is going to say to them, why have you been complaining about your life when I have given you all of this? Because why are you been complaining about your life when I sent my son to die for you like you heard in that elevator? And that person's going to believe. I read all kinds of stuff. I listen to all kinds of stuff. Probably involved in stuff I shouldn't be. I'm learning how to put soles on shoes. Nothing more important in this book. Because it's this book that will give praise to his glory. Stand with me, please. Heavenly Father, I thank you for faithful people. Um, And this went so long, maybe some did believe that this was the longest sentence in Scripture. We thank you for the faithfulness of your word. I, I tried to share what I felt you wanted me to share. I pray that through it, you would produce faith in people's hearts. We're not alone. Your plan is progressing and it's moving forward and it will not fail. And in that plan, you have a place for us. And in the end, through all of the ups and downs of this life, because of your faithfulness, through all of the hurts and the difficulties and the failures and the struggles and the bad tempers and the good tempers and all of the things that go on for yelling at kids and hugging kids and all of the things that happen through life and death and all the circumstances of life, in the end, our life will give praise to your glory because that's your plan. In Jesus' name, amen.